Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Mike Jennings. Mike is a para snowboard coach for the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee and has been coaching the US para snowboard team for the last few years. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you, Liz. Happy to be here. Mike, can you give us a bit of background about yourself and how you got into coaching para-snowboard? Sure. Let's see where to start. Uh, I've been involved (laughs) in competitive sports my entire life since I was a kid. We were pretty much put into all of the sports across the board and uh, basically football stuck. Uh, Ended up Mm -hmm. staying with football through high school graduated, went to college, played football in uh, New York City for the Columbia Lions. And then when I graduated from that, I uh, ended up going back to the uh, West Coast. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to do some coaching with the Corona High School football team, a former coach of mine had become the head coach there and he welcomed me on as a defensive end coach. So I ended up really enjoying the opportunity to to share a lot of the information that I had gained from the coaches I had had through my career and then be able to to pass that information on as opposed to just, you know, sitting on it and then have it not be uh useful to anyone anymore. So that was kind of like a, a first bug that I got of coaching. Then uh, once college was finished and I was on the West Coast, I ended up getting involved with snowboarding. I like a friend of mine was like, hey, let's let's go try this. Went up to Mammoth Mountain and snowboarded for the first time. It was like some professional athlete uh, that was a snowboarder was the a friend of like was the roommate of my buddy that I knew. So I went up his roommate let me borrow one of his snowboards. I even remember the motto is a, a K2 fat Bob. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of for bigger people with bigger feet, you know, it's like a wide, it's a wide board, which is something I'm, I have to ride. Yeah. Cause you're not a small guy, are you? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm uh, about six, four, wear size 13 street shoes and, um, you know, Way anywhere Not between. Not your typical snowboarder. <laughs> no, way anywhere between two twenty-five and two thirty-five, depending on mm. you know where we're at in the season. And then, uh, so yeah, did the the snowboarding like first attempt and ended up falling in love with it. Kind of the reason I mentioned mm-hmm. that is as a football player, you're kind of limited and not really allowed especially depending on the serious, the level of seriousness of the program that you're involved with to do winter sports. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. not only do they happen around the same time, but the risk of, of being injured. Injury. Um, yeah. Yeah. When you have an entire team that's counting on you to, to fill a position, it just isn't something that's done or at least not that I did. So I didn't really yeah. even get a chance to experience skiing or snowboarding until yeah. basically graduating college. Uh, when I did, I totally fell in love with it and then um, mm-hmm. ended up doing some different jobs out of college, was doing like some different finance, considering, you know, pursuing that. I did some sales positions, did a couple of sales positions, and I was just kind of not feeling satisfied in mm-hmm. what I was doing. I didn't, even even when I felt like I was successful, it just a lot of times was because I was individually successful and maybe even at the detriment of the other people that I was doing business with mm-hmm. because of, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's a zero sum game where, you know, if you get the extra hundred dollars on the deal, somebody had to lose that extra hundred dollars. Yep. You know. So yep. that was kind of a problem for me because I've always been motivated by trying to be a positive influence on the area I'm at or the group that I'm around or the environment I'm in. Mm-hmm. So I ended up, I mean, this is really kind of a weird story, but at one of the jobs I was at, the secretary, one of the secretaries that worked there, her son had bought a five book lesson pack 
um, <laughs> to go take lessons at the local ski resort. And yeah. on his first lesson, he had uh, injured his arm, I think broke it or something. Oh. So wow. he, yeah, so he was done. And she had this booklet and she's like, hey, you want these? He's, he's not doing it anymore. He's done with it. So, you know, you could take these last four lesson tickets mm-hmm. out of this uh, booklet and go see if they can, you know, help you. Cause you know, at that point she knew I was, you know, playing around with it a little bit and, and having fun. So, yep. you know, not thinking that I couldn't benefit from someone uh, giving me some instruction. I was like, yeah, sounds good. Went and took the lesson, rolled up mm-hmm. to the uh, check-in and he's like, Hey, what would you like? And I'm like, uh, I would like to learn some three sixties. <laughs> so then, <laughs> so he's thinking, oh, this is the best lesson ever, of course. But then, but then, but then also he's thinking, you're not really ready for three sixties. Yeah, that's what everybody says. But so the the supervisor, the director, basically that was putting out the lessons, he was like, oh, I'll take you then. So he and I went out for our hour and a half, two hour lesson, and. <laughs> He worked to help me learn 360. I was actually at at a level that I was ready to start attempting it. Mm -hmm. And then we struck up a a great friendship that he ended up being, he's ended up becoming a lifelong friend of mine that that I really value, got me basically involved in the industry because at the end of the lesson, he tells me, "Um, you are better right now than the majority of my instructors. So if you want a job, why don't, why don't you come teach for me? And I was like, you know, I've got a job right now, but I'll keep that in mind. Um, mm-hmm. So fast forward to some disfat- dissatisfaction at work, maybe feeling that I wasn't being adequately compensated for the, the amount of work that I was doing and the mm-hmm. training of new employees that were coming in, things like that. And then when I went and brought that to my boss's attention, he, you know, maybe didn't take it seriously and was like, oh, you know, that's, that's just how it is. Well, that's just how it is. Well, here's my two weeks. Now you got to figure out who's going to train these people now because I'm not. And I'm going to go teach snowboarding. (laughs) (laughs) So did your, did your family say, oh, Mike's having a midlife crisis? (laughs) They definitely did, but they supported me because they've, they've, that's one thing that they've, always instilled me was that, you know, you got to go after what you believe in and, and pursue mm-hmm. what's going to make you happy. And cool. for a period of time, you know, maybe it was, you know, it's trying to figure out, is it money? And mm. thankfully before too long, I did figure out that it, it's not money. I mean, obviously money yeah. is important and it's required in order to, to live and to do, uh, you know, pursue the things that you're interested in. But the pursuit of money in and of itself is not a, a goal. There's no end to that. You, you're always going to be mm-hmm. trying to, to, to get more money and you only need so much, yeah. you know? So, yeah. and that's when it comes back down to, in my opinion, more about happiness, pursuing your happiness. And then it's a matter of you yeah. just need enough money to be able to provide for the things that make you happy. Mm-hmm. And then that can actually be an attainable goal where if, if it's just money, it's, it's never ending and you'll never be happy. There's, there's no point of satisfaction. I mean, you can look at the billionaires, the crazy billionaires nowadays. And, um, sometimes it's just more problems when you get that much money. Mm, true. So then where did you progress into para snowboard coaching? Ah, okay, good, good. So then once I started teaching snowboarding, fell in love with it, like took the, the instructor training course that first year, just dove in and loved it. Totally. Yeah. Just had like this voracious hunger for, for gathering as much information as I could and pretty much went out, started getting certification. The second Mm -hmm. year I taught the instructor course pretty Mm -hmm. much each year, got another level of certification, ended up being one of the first snowboarders to obtain a uh, full certification level at the mountain I was at at the time, um, Camelback mm-hmm. Ski Resort. Uh, it's in Pennsylvania. And then realized that I loved snowboarding so much and teaching snowboarding so much that being on the East Coast, when the, the length of the season is only about three to four months, 
I started to figure out, hmm, I might need to move somewhere <laughs> because yeah, then I'm, I'm only be really consistent snow. <laughs> that as well. That as well. I mean, hmm. just, you know, I was looking for more of a six to seven month uh, yeah. winter season. So ended up doing a little tour around the country, went to a bunch of different resorts that I hadn't been to that were kind of on my list that I wanted to see and basically to, to basically uh, try places out. And see, hey, yep. is this is this somewhere where I want to, you know, lay some roots down and and give it a go? Uh, so it was kind of like around Summit County, Colorado, that area, and then ended up uh, mm-hmm. following a group of friends that were leaving Summit County, like the Colorado area, at the end of the season there, and traveling mm-hmm. to Mount Hood, Oregon, mm-hmm. to continue the season uh, because yeah. Mount Hood is one of the few places in the. Uh, continental United States where they have basically year round skiing, um, and snowboarding. They are on Mount hood. Uh, it's a volcano that pretty much up until there's a snowfield on it that pretty much up until like September 3rd, I think is usually around the, the closing date for the summer. Um, wow, that's quite light. Yeah, they'll they'll run it all the way till then, and then mm-hmm. shut it down for maybe you know two weeks to service all the lifts, and then mm-hmm. at that point it's really up to Mother Nature as to when she wants to bring the snow back, because pretty mm-hmm. much as soon as there's enough to start riding again, they will start opening again on the weekends. So right. that was how I decided that I loved Mount Hood, Oregon, and. Mm-hmm. Ended up settling there for a couple of years and then realized, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be here a while. So <laughs> uh, so ended up uh, becoming the training director at their ski school. It's like during the winter period, you know, then during the spring and summer operations, their ski schools kind of don't have as much customer base because mm-hmm. a lot of the people that ride during the summers are more the higher level you know, ski racers that are coming from the East Coast or freestyle riders that are coming from all over the country and world to to use the features that they have. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I went ahead and got involved with one of the summer camps to, you know, yep, to to sort of supplement what I was doing during the the winter and Mm -hmm. ended up working with one of the longest standing camps on Mount Hood. It's Mount Hood Summer Ski Camps. And ended up kind of focusing for a portion of it, you know, always kind of trying to help where the help is most needed, was coaching some freestyle uh, programs there. But then also there was a need for a race coach. So I started, yep, started coaching with their race program. Uh, And the, the unique part about that was I ended up getting a decent number of athletes that were set up or wanting to be set up on hard boot snowboard stance set up a hard boot setup basically so i ended up getting one of those setups and basically taught myself to ride it using you know basically using the knowledge that i had from learning the technical aspects of snowboarding on my freestyle setup and then just trying to translate that information and and go out and experiment with it and, and try to be, uh, basically become more knowledgeable, comfortable, and able on that setup so that I could then, you know, assist these other riders that are, you know, looking to improve on that, you know, pretty niche Yeah, because so, so, so why would someone who can snowboard on a freestyle snowboard, why would they choose to go to a hard boot? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. So... It's almost akin to why would someone ski when they could snowboard or vice versa? Yeah. Um, because it is really, it's that different. Mm-hmm. And something that's pretty interesting along those lines are the alignment that you have when you're skiing and the movements that you make in order to give inputs to the skis so that they can then react with the snow and then send you in whatever direction you're hoping that it's going to send you. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens on the snowboard, uh, except it's basically a 90 degree alignment change. Mm -hmm. And then the movements, exactly, then the the hips are actually doing the movement in that 90 degree difference as well. Well, Mm. 
the hard boot racing is kind of a 45. It's kind of like right in between. If you were to take ah, a freestyle snowboard right. stance and a, and a perfect skier stance and then start moving from one to the other, right when you got around the middle, stop there. Right. Boom. Yep. And then you have what right. the you know what is the basic proper stance for a hard boot setup. Typically, hard boots are better construction. You know, they're 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 usually really expensive because they have really good base material, really good core mm-hmm. construction, good metal edges and whatnot. They also are typically much longer, mm-hmm. so that there is a longer effective edge on the board. Just basically right. more more to use to your weight on to turn the board and the stiffness of the boots really work when the proper movements are made uh, work to allow you to really leverage your body weight so Mm -hmm. hard into the edges that it is a really interesting uh combination of of skiing and snowboarding i mean you just you, you only have the two edges obviously but you are yep. starting to approach the, the positions that you would be when you're skiing at times. And the relevance of this, just to fast forward a, a tiny bit, is that yeah. for many para snowboarders, it's effectively what they have to work with. Exactly. I've, that's exactly the route I was going down. So then in yep. the process of, of coaching these uh, hard boot racers, I had to start adapting my knowledge set that mm-hmm. I had previously only been applying to freestyle setups. and Because you've never and... skied on – had you ever skied on skis? Don't tell anybody, but, yeah, I did once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> but not enough to know. <laughs> but not kidding. enough to <laughs> – No, I, I, it's, for me, it doesn't really matter to me. I don't – there's not like, oh, it's all snowboarder, it's all skier. It's like yep. it's whatever yep. you enjoy, whatever – yeah. allows you to go out and have fun and puts a smile on your face that's the one you should be on and you know i, yeah. I can i can do both to a certain extent but uh-huh. once i got to the point in my snowboarding that i was enjoying it as much as i was it's it's pretty rare that i would opt to put skis back on okay okay so oh. so you were becoming an expert in this hard boot yeah and and, and instructing yep and then in that process and- in that process, uh, even as an instructor, there were times even on the East Coast that, uh, you know, I, because I was like the training director, you know, and, and excelled, rose through the ranks as far as like um, mm-hmm. the skill set and the, the knowledge that I acquired in my certification and whatnot. Anytime there would be a, a complicated lesson or something that was challenging, they would, you know, usually put me on it. So cool. call on I, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, you know, cause I, and I liked the challenges too. So mm. a lot of times I, I, if there was a para athlete that came to the school, the ski school that was looking for some instruction, I was the one that got it. So I did, mm. you know, even as an instructor at ski schools, I did get some experience with working with adaptive riders and, and beginning to, to try to understand how to help them make the board perform the way they want it to while working around the different impairments that they had. So, and then, so now fast forward to Mount hood, we ended up having a couple adaptive riders sign up for the race camp. So then Mm -hmm. it kind of all came full circle because then I was using the skills that I'd built in translating my freestyle snowboarding knowledge to hard booting race knowledge and then taking that and applying it to para athletics yep which was really enjoyable mm. probably the thing that i saw uh pretty early on is is probably the most significant piece is just the individual aspect of everybody's particular impairment and condition mm-hmm. and that they're the whole idea of anything being cookie cutter just kind of gets thrown out the window. I mean, it's, it's mm. more about what works and what doesn't yep. as opposed to this is what works for everybody. It's like, no, that that's not such a thing anymore. And I guess it would also depend on what type of prosthetic they had, if they were a low limb amputee, for example, or depending on the impairment itself. But, you know, there's so many nuances there because some people wouldn't have prosthetics that would be 
particularly flexible, I guess, in terms that's maybe not the way to describe it because prosthetics aren't flexible, but, you know, didn't have a lot of dynamic to them. Definitely. I mean, and, and even within that, so the prosthetics will change, but then also the sockets are so unique to the individual mm-hmm. as well. And, mm-hmm. how, you know, how long their stump would be if, if they had an amputation mm-hmm. makes for totally different cause and effect relationships inside of the socket that then transfers the energy down through the prosthetic to the board. So that's like mm-hmm. this whole new set of calculations that have to get put in to the larger equation for them trying to make the board, yeah, make the board do what they're trying to have it do. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so from there, you you were invited to to a national team training camp, or how did you kind of transition into the national team? There you go. So then there is a girl named Gretchen that mm-hmm. a, a lady named Gretchen that is in charge of all of the salt on Mount Hood during the summer. So, mm-hmm. and that's, that's not an like, interesting job, isn't it? it it's probably it's one, of, it's one of the most important ones in that uh, on that entire mountain because when I say salt, I'm talking about using the salt to condition the snow. So what they end up doing is they end up spraying snow using like you know these different equipment like farm spreading equipment and things. And they shoot this salt all over the snow so that it will firm up the snow enough, you know, during these hot summer months so that they can run the groomers over it and condition it and get it back into, uh, you know, all corduroy. So it's all nice for the next day. And then the racers come out and then they throw salt on it in the morning as the sun's hitting it right when it's getting ready to soften up. And then that helps it lock up again and firm up so that they can have conditions uh, that, you know, approximate what it would actually be like during the winter mm. as, as mm. opposed to just letting everything get all like super slushy and soft. Yeah. And so Gretchen introduced you to. Mm-hmm. And so exactly. Gretchen uh, knew me just from seeing the different camps that I'd be running and seeing you know, the athletes come in and, and their skill sets and, you know, their ability level and whatnot on that first day. And then mm-hmm. she'd, you know, see us at the end of the week, day five on Friday, you know, we're all out ripping, having fun, ripping gates and, you know, ideally Im- improved considerably. Um, so mm-hmm. then she, uh, her husband, uh, his name is Mark, affectionately known as Skitty. <laughs> and uh, he is a technician for the U.S. Paralympic team. Well, mm-hmm. he was aware that they were in need of a new coach. The head coach, current head coach, Alex Tuttle, was you know looking around to see if he could get someone to help support him. And mm-hmm. Gretchen was aware that I'd probably be a pretty good candidate for that. So mm-hmm. she, she spoke with Mark. Mark spoke with Alex. I went back around. She suggested I send in my resume with cover letter. Boom. Did that. Met Alex maybe a day or two later up at the mountain. And Mm -hmm. it's all history from there. Mm, Amazing. What a journey. It it has been wild because I'll be honest, (laughs) uh, I was pretty close to transitioning back into the business realm again. Um, You know, starting to move to the part of my life where I'm, you know, considering, you know, maybe having a family and whatnot and felt like maybe I wasn't getting to where I wanted to go. I, I didn't feel like I was getting many opportunities to to excel in the industry mm. and it was pretty close to doing it. And then when that opportunity came around, I was like, well, I'm glad I waited because this Time was meant to everything. be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because yeah, exactly. That job is not it's really not a job where you could find on a job posting board or anything. No. That's, yeah, that's no. that word of mouth type job where yep. someone has to know you in order for you yep. to get a, a look. So yep. really thankful, really thankful that that came about. Awesome. So can you tell us about para snowboarding? Like what are the eligible impairments? What are the events? And you know, what, what do you see as some of the key physiological and physical demands? Sure. Uh, we have two events, uh, two main events. We have a border cross event. That's when 
you'll have uh, up to four racers on the same course where they'll have mm -hmm. technical features like little whoops and jumps and banks. And then it's just first person through is the winner. We also have a banked slalom competition where that is uh, more the individual against the course. Um, and then mm -hmm. that's just strictly for a time. They have started to play around with dual banked slalom events as well, mm -hmm. where they basically have side-by-side -side banked slalom courses. And then All right. yep. Yep, it's more of like a head-to-head -head mm -hmm. event where you uh, advance by beating the, you know, the combined time. Yep of uh, mm -hmm. whoever you were slotted against in the brackets and then mm -hmm. move forward from there, uh, which can be, a, mm -hmm. you know, makes it a little more exciting for spectators, I guess, because then you're actually mm -hmm. seeing more of a head to head comp as opposed to just racing against the clock. Mm -hmm. And let's see different classifications. We mm -hmm. have, we have three classifications. Uh, we have what's known as a LL one, which these are all grouping that the determination of exactly which grouping you fall in, depending upon your unique impairment and condition, is something that they examine at classification events that would take mm -hmm. place maybe prior to one of the larger international events. So in the categories I'm going to explain now are, these are general terms, and it's kind of like a baseline for where how the categories would, would split up, but the specifics of it get uh, very detailed as, as you start to look closer and closer. Um, and then that's when they have the, the different doctors and sort of a, a whole group that kind of sit down and, and examine the individual and then try to figure out which category they best would uh, be suited for. Um, yeah. So. The LL1 category is, uh, in general, it's basically an impairment of two joints. So, for example, an above-knee amputee would be mm -hmm. qualified, uh, excuse me, classified in the LL1 category. LL2 category would be basically an impairment of one joint. So, for example, a below-knee amputee. And then we have an upper limb category which uh, one or two upper limb impairments, e either one or both, go into that category. Yep. The conditions can be congenital. They could be as a result of trauma. So they could also, doesn't necessarily have to be an amputation, uh, could be a, a lack of motor control, conditions like cerebral palsy fall in these categories yep. as well. Um, mm -hmm. so th there's a pretty long list that would qualify, but those would be the basic classes. Yeah. Cool. And what do you think of the physical and physiological demands of the sport? Like how long does it take to do a run down the hill, for example? Okay. So courses will typically be around one to one twenty in that range. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a minute of, of full exertion. Is pretty intense. Yep. Combine and then that how many with run exactly. Combine that with yeah. How many it, runs would they do? Yeah. Exactly. So you're talking. So say we're in a competition day. You're going to get mm -hmm. probably three runs before they even get to heats. Then, mm -hmm. if you were to try and make it all the way to to podium, you may have to make it through four heats, five heats. So now we're mm -hmm. talking, you know, six runs, seven runs, and yep. Obviously, at that point, the seventh run, you need to pretty much be at your best because that's going to be yep. when you're that's when the you're gold racing. Medal the, one. <laughs> you got it. That's when you're going to be racing the the biggest competition. So, yeah, fit, fitness is huge, and maintaining their uh, cardiovascular abilities and really keeping good tabs on injuries ends up being yep. a huge a huge concern for them. And and I don't mean just normal, you know, like everyday injuries that all athletes experience. I mean, injuries that are more a result of the forces that are being dealt with on the socket and the stump. And, you know, for the people that have mm -hmm. the amputations and whatnot, they're mm -hmm. dealing with blisters, hot spots, uh, ingrown hairs that can, you know, never get a chance to really dry out or heal properly because you know, 
they've got to put their socket on the next day to walk mm-hmm. around and, you know, get themselves to where they're going, let alone to go out and ride down the hill as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hygiene is, is huge. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, to a degree, immune function and oh. just having sufficient, I guess, nutrients to make sure that you're focused on healing rather than, you know, more probably more so than your average individual. Agreed. Like, absolutely. And then just as important being the rest mm. portion of that equation, both just rest as far as days off, but also sleep. I mean, the, yep. the quality of sleep that they get has uh, a huge impact on their immune system and the, their body's ability to, to deal with all those little nagging things. In addition to the larger muscle fatigue that's that's getting, you know, tearing their muscles down. One of the bigger challenges that we have throughout the season is maintaining weight because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they do go through this period of strength training Mm -hmm. because we are in a gravity fed sport. The amount of mass that you have is beneficial. Uh, The more that you have, Mm -hmm. the more beneficial. Obviously, if that mass is also mostly muscle, that's going to bet you benefit you even more because then not only are you yeah. going to have the mass, but you're going to have the power and the explosion explosiveness as well. Yeah. So first of all, getting them up to that level of strength and power, and then really trying to be conscious of as we're going through the season and traveling to all these remote locations that have, you know, who knows what type of cuisine, mm. being able to get them enough fuel and protein and nutrients and whatnot to both fuel their activities as well as help their body to rebuild um, so that they don't just sit there and keep dropping weight the mm. entire season. And then you've got weather conditions as well because some of the places that you, you go to are pretty cold and so you've got the additional energy needs to, to stay warm. Absolutely. And, and now that you mentioned that, that's a good point. One of the locations that we travel to pretty frequently is Puha, Finland. And Mm. we like that location because they end up doing a camp prior to the race event. So you can go Mm -hmm. there for, you know, a good two or three weeks and get a really nice long block of training. And then without having to travel and relocate anywhere and go through all the logistical issues, boom, you can just go right into an event. Um, Mm. And we know the area pretty well so that the nutritional situation there is, is manageable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they stay in self-contained apartments where they can do a little bit of cooking themselves rather than having to always eat out. Exactly. Um, it's kind of like a dormitory style, you know, kind of little kitchenettes and whatnot. And mm. the interesting thing, one of the, the interesting things about Puha is it's, uh, I believe it's above the Arctic Circle. So mm. for at least during the time that we're there, there's a very short period of time that the sun is actually up. So then (laughs) we're starting to talk about we're in, you know, darkness, you know, 20 hours a day. And when the sun comes up, it actually never comes up. It just sort of like sun rises. And then right when it's at the point where it's like, okay, it's going past sunrise. It's like, nope, it's going to go back down. It's setting again. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's it. So, you know, the whole, the whole vitamin D aspect, and and you know you're there for three weeks and you really don't see the sun too much. I can yeah. I can start to have impacts on uh, you know a, a lot of systems in the body. Well, I remember when I went there for a camp once, and you just couldn't get into a good sleep routine because you didn't have that sunlight that kind of triggered. Oh, it's daytime. I think everyone's sleep routines were all over the place. Absolutely, absolutely. Almost to the point that like when the sun did come up, they'd be like, all right, everybody, let's take a break. (laughs) And then they'd all go, (laughs) they'd all go rest because it was kind of, you know, weird. It was like flat light almost. And they'd be like, they just wait for the sun to go down. They're like, all right, this is better. We'll go back to the the lights, practicing under the lights. Fair enough. And so what does a typical train, and and this one's a tough one because you've got a, a typical training week during summer where they might be cross training if they're not on able to get on snow and then you may have a typical training week during winter but can you kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what both might look like sure we tend we tend to strive for 
a four day block of training, mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of a goal that we, we try to work up to by the time we're ready to be in competition shape. Yeah. The reason for that is because they typically have a practice day, a qualifying day, and then a finals day. Mm -hmm. Depending on how many people are there, they, there may be a fourth day that gets added into that mix. Um, especially if we start talking about World Cup and uh, the pair of games. So mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is prepare them so that if they had to have had to compete four days straight, that we're trying to build them up so that they would be able to handle that volume and still perform near their highest level on that fourth day. So mm -hmm. we typically will start out with maybe a, a two day, one day off, and then another, and then go back to two days and then kind of reassess. And it, it, and it really is, uh, this is another aspect that's really individual because all it takes, as I was saying, was kind of like, man, one little ingrown hair on the wrong spot on mm -hmm. your leg and you're not going to be thinking about any of the things that you are trying to work on. You're just going to be yep. in agony dealing with yeah, that, agony, you know, yep. the whole Maslow's yep. kind of situation. So at any point in time, it, it has to be adjustable. Um, it's yep. always, there's always like a target that we set up a bullseye and then we're trying to get as close to it as we can, knowing that, you know, we're playing the long game. So if we got to cut this one short today, that's no problem. We'll just go back out it and then try to get it back up to that level the next time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times during the summer, they, you know, are doing more so cross training activities and doing those on their, their own, you know, whether that be mountain biking, a lot of the guys like to skateboard. Mm -hmm. um, they do a lot of those kind of activities during the summer to, you know, try and keep the quick twitch muscle fibers going and the muscle memory for the different different moves that we're working on mm -hmm. we don't we, we end up going for maybe like week two week long trips typically in the summer mm -hmm. trying to to keep it from getting to be too much overload uh during that time of the year just for the fact that during the season there's like those three months where you know we're pretty consistently on the road the whole time so mm -hmm. during the summer we try to you know, allow people enough time to, to get to spend time with their family and, and take care of everything at home and then try to regroup for, you know, a solid week or two and, and really just get a lot of work done during that period of time together. Mm -hmm. And then as they go back and return home, they are just continuing, you know, to keep that program moving in that direction until the next time we're able to, to get back together as a, a full team. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in winter, as you said, a lot of it's being on the road to, to travelling to competitions and maybe a couple of training camps if there's the opportunity to have them in there but obviously with COVID that was a bit of a tricky time because competitions were being cancelled or moved or postponed at the last second and so it's it hasn't been the easiest last 12 months has it? No it's, it's been quite challenging and we're pretty happy it was able to, to actually happen and that they didn't just mm. kind of hang it all up it was was difficult, but let's hope that we're uh, we're heading in a better direction now, and and maybe that won't yeah. be. Maybe I won't have to spend half my time thinking about uh, epidemiology, and I can focus all of it back on snowboarding. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Fair enough. Um, and so, when you are on snow, what do you think is the maximum amount of time that? A, you know, for a, a training session that, that's evolving the skills and things like that. Like if you look at snowboarders who go out for fun, they'll go out for the whole day or for half a day. What about the, you know, the para snowboarders in terms of an actual training session themselves? What, what sort of time frame do you usually put around that? That's a great question. And that would really depend on what we were trying to get out of it. If we're trying to simulate competition volume, then we would definitely not be riding the whole day. We would be doing something that's more similar to what they'd experience at a race. So it would be, you know, a practice run, and then you got to sit down and hang out for a while, just not really doing much. Mm -hmm. And then maybe another practice run, and then you got to sit down and kind of like allow yourself to relax and get, you know, get mellowed out. And then, and then boom, now we're going to go into the heat. So now we're going to do, you know, uh, high high intensity run 
with say mm-hmm. 10, 15 minutes in between. And then we're going to do another yeah. high intense, you know, so basically just things that are trying to, to mirror as closely as possible, whatever event it is that they're preparing for. Mm-hmm. However, when we are just working on skills and, you know, basically the fundamentals of snowboarding and then just improving people's comfort zones on their snowboard and, and then enhancing what they are capable of, what they understand, what they're confident in, what they trust, trying to give them as many tools in their toolbox as possible. Mm-hmm. We might, we might spend a whole day out doing that because you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't have to be at as high of an intensity. Mm-hmm. That's something more where we're kind of just rolling around, you know, playing around with stuff as opposed to yep. at the top of the course, like, all right, now I'm going to go for a minute and 20 seconds at a hundred percent, like all out. No, it's like, we're going to go roll around and play for a little bit. So yep. Um, yep. it all really depends on what you're trying to get out of that particular day of training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, you want to keep the excitement in there and the interest, and and they need. What I've seen is that snowboarders need to have time to play. Uh, that's equally as important as as the intensity time. I'm a big believer in if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong because mm-hmm. that's the whole point. I mean, of snowboarding is you know what I'm talking about. It's like just yeah. don't just don't mess up snowboarding. That's all you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the easiest, the easiest thing on the planet. Don't mess up snowboarding. So cool. uh, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the love of it. Yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be able to stoke that passion because no matter what, it it really comes down to time on your board, and it comes down to how well you know your board. So the more fun that an athlete has snowboarding, the more time they're gonna spend on the board, the better they're gonna know it, and then that's just all to the good. So, yep, cool. We've kind of talked in in a roundabout way the common nutrition issues. So, getting enough food in for for that high intensity work and for the for keeping weight up, especially in cold environment, especially uh, on hill, like during the competition, yep. that was something I wanted to mention too. You know, and that, and that's yep. something where yep. they've been really taking advantage of, uh, you know, like the the Gatorade cubes and the gel packs mm-hmm. and, you know, some of the different products that have come out that, um, you know, have the really high value, high calorie items that yep. they can just have in their backpack up at the top of the course. Cause yeah. Yeah. Do you think, do you think fluid is another thing that they need to <laughs> sort of keep an eye on? Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. And hand in hand, right. As yep. important, if not more important. Yeah. Because the altitudes that you're often training at are fairly high and fairly dry. Absolutely. Just sucks the moisture out of you. It really feels like no matter how much you drink, you've got a dry mouth yep. the whole yep. time. So, yeah, yep. just lots of little lots of little sips. Every, every chance you mm-hmm. get, anytime you go by the water bottle, just take a little glove. And one of the problems I know we've had discussions around is that, you know, the, the temperatures often – some things don't go well, like a banana will freeze, and um, <laughs> or some some types of bars are, are very hard to bite into because they're frozen. So it True. needs to be something that actually holds up pretty well under cold conditions. Yep, there's a, a little trick that I do. It's it, you know I don't know it works for me, but like <laughs> the Cliff Bars. I th- I'm, yep. I'm guessing those are kind of the ones you're talking about in the cold temps. <laughs> yeah, man, that turned into a brick. Well, some that's happened to me before. So one of the things I did was before going out on the hill that day, while I was still inside and the, the cliff bar is still kind of warm, I'll sit there and mm-hmm. kind of squish it into bite-sized pieces while it's still soft. <laughs> and, then, and then it freezes, but then it's frozen in bite-sized pieces. So it kind of worked out mm-hmm. a little better. But A lot easier, yeah. If you, if you have a better yes. option, I'm sure there's <laughs> there's better. <laughs> Pockets close to your body. <laughs> Ooh, there you go, yeah. Yeah, sort of keeping them with you. So, you know, one of the things we always used to talk about with the snowboarders is that there's always downtime on a ski lift when they're going from the bottom to the top of the of the hill and to take advantage of that time to grab something to eat and something to drink even if it's just a bite here and a sip there it's just that continual sort of nourishment through the whole day 
And then that way they don't have to worry about getting like all sloshy or, or like over full or stuff, you know, yep. for the activities, if they're yep. just doing little, little sips and little bites at a time. Yeah. That's, that's definitely ideal. Yeah. So what recommendations do you have for potential coaches who may be interested in getting into coaching para snowboard? Well, I know that the uh, association that I work with, American Association of Snowboard Instructors, it's a sister organization for one that you may be more familiar with, Professional Ski Instructors of America, PSIA. They mm -hmm. have started some uh, para programs and a couple mm -hmm. different para events. So if any of those coaches are already involved in or certified, through the American Association of Snowboard Instructors, they can look into that to see about any of those events. Uh, otherwise, it would be a matter of looking into what local programs around you offer adaptive programs. And mm. there aren't a ton, depending upon where you're at. Um, a, there are a good number in the Denver area and in the Salt Lake City area. There are different tiers as well. A lot of the adaptive programs that you'll find around the country are more of an introductory type program mm -hmm. where they're just trying to expose the people to uh, that possibility um, as yep. opposed to being more advanced and more like along the lines of competition uh, training. Mm -hmm. So um, basically just getting out there and trying to, to find what different programs there are in your local area. Mm -hmm. Going if, if you don't have any idea where to start, going by a local ski resort ski school and just asking them if you had a para customer or you know an adaptive skier that wanted to get some instruction, what programs would you send them to in the area? And you can kind of like mm -hmm. tap into the information that way. Cool. And, you know, one of the, what are some of the things that you've learned in terms of working with para-athletes that is different than working with able-bodied athletes? Hmm. Let's see. I would say, for me, I, I value the collaborative relationship of a coach and athlete very mm -hmm. highly. Yep. And I've found that the para-athletes that I've worked with are very, very, very in tune with their body, mm. more so than able-bodied athletes would be. Yep. It makes sense because they have to be because of kind of those mm. concerns that, you know, I mentioned earlier that they, they have to kind of be on top of all of those yep. details. Um, they can't just let it slide for a day and then boom, mm. if they did that, all of a sudden, they all of a sudden lost three days mm. to recovering from you know, whatever injury they sustained or, or whatever sore was acting up or inflamed or, or whatnot. So yeah. really being in the process of sharing the information I have with them, being completely open to hearing the information that they think is relevant mm -hmm. to that situation, even if it mm -hmm. doesn't seem initially to me to be relevant, to make sure that I understand that I, I need to find out why that is a concern for them because mm. it, it'll be it'll it'll be the the road that'll get us to the the place that we were trying to get to the, the solution yeah. nine times out of nine times out of ten the solution will will be uh you know um, grounded in their concerns because as i said they yeah. just they deal with it day in and day out you know that's yeah it's their body so that's yeah. something that's something that i've uh definitely learned to to value Mm. And any recommendations that you have for practitioners, whether that's sports dietitians, sports psychology, you know, sports medicine, physical therapies, any recommendations that you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I would say have the conversation, like mm. at any point in time, just ask questions, ask them a question, have them ask you questions. It's just the, the better the lines of communication are the the easier it's going to be to to figure out what's needed yeah great um mike you've d given us a an enormous amount of time and and input and i really appreciate that i want one more final question what's okay. your favorite food Ooh, 
my favorite food. Oh, we're going to say anchovy sauce. My mom's anchovy sauce. Really? <laughs> Italian. Yep. <laughs> it's so good. What What do you put that with? Uh, you put it on lasagna. Or excuse me, uh, uh-huh. linguine. And linguine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you can right. um, used to have it like uh, for Christmas Eve, like at my grandma's house, it'd be like this whole seafood spread that be that would be all laid out, like schmelts. Yep. Yeah. Have you ever had schmelts? Bacala? No. It's all Italian. It's like all Italian stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Italian. Mm-hmm. We'll say Italian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but specifically your, your mum's anchovy sauce. Yes, because it's so delicious, but it's so simple. It really only has like, <laughs> really only has like four ingredients. But wow, it's delicious. Mm, cool. Well, thank you so much, Mike, and and well done to you on what a fascinating journey into you know transitioning from being a, a footballer and a football coach into coaching para snowboarders. It's definitely not a mainstream avenue to <laughs> to. The- to do that so the yeah, road well not done. taken that's me yeah <laughs> I, lo- I love it though I, I think it, you know it just shows that there's always possibilities if you continue to follow your passion and Agreed. and what really you know finding out what makes you tick and then working out where that that passion can kind of lead you and and being brave enough to follow it so well done to you thank you Liz I appreciate that I think Mike's story highlights the fact that you can come into coaching parasport from any direction and not necessarily being an athlete within that sport itself, but understanding how to get the best out of the athletes that you work with. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave a message on our website if you have any feedback or any recommendations for people you'd like to hear from and I hope you share this with your social media. Please join us next time when we talk to Daniel Michelle who is a botcher player.